bottom line is is the key to success at anything. And that goes true also for being a follower of Jesus Christ. To become a mature disciple of Jesus, it takes, it takes time, it takes repetition of, of, of hearing something over and over again and of practicing something over and over again. But you know what? Uh, sometimes we just, we just don't get it at first. Sometimes it just, sometimes it just don't take initially. And it takes repetition. And we run into a story here this morning of, of Jesus with the disciples. And, and we see a, a whole lot of similarities in this chapter with what we've looked at in the last few weeks. And, and I think the message that we ought to take away from this this morning is to praise God for His persistence and for His patience in dealing with us. As we struggle to learn and as we struggle to grow as disciples, we ought to praise God for His persistence and for His patience in dealing with us, His people. I want to invite you, if you are able to this morning, please stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. These words were written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Let's pray together. Father God, as we open up this book this morning, I pray that we do so with the sense that this is not just another book that this is not an ordinary writing. Father, this is your word. This has been breathed out by your Holy Spirit. Therefore, this word must be true. This word must be trustworthy. This word must bear your authority. I pray, God, as we read, I pray that we believe and that we trust. God, I pray that we submit to your word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening up a Bible where, where we have God speaking to us. For being in a place where this word can be preached and where we can gather unhindered to hear and respond. Father, help us as we seek to learn and grow. Help us know more and more about you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
I've entitled this sermon Deja Vu all over again because Deja Vu is that sense that you get that I've been here before or something very familiar about this. I, I've heard this once before and, and it's a strange feeling to get sometimes when you feel like now this isn't the first time that, that I've been in this place and heard this. And as we look back in chapter 6, as we, we saw Jesus feed the 5,000 in that situation, and we trace what happened after that to this point, we see between the end of chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 8, there is a lot of things that sound familiar. First of all, there's a miraculous feeding that we just read about, followed by a trip in a boat which is then followed by a conflict with the religious leaders, which is then followed by a discussion about bread, which is then followed by a miraculous healing, which leads to a profession of faith. We saw all of that transpire in the end of chapter 6 through chapter 7. Now, lo and behold, we find ourselves seeing the same things happen again. And the question we might ask then why this repetition? Well, I believe, first of all, it was historical. These things really took place, and I believe they really took place in this order. It, it just happened to be these same things followed one after the other, which, of course, leads us to the next point. It's theological in nature. That I believe these things happened in the order they did and then repeated themselves immediately after that because Jesus was wanting to teach something to his disciples that they just quite didn't grasp the first time around. I think they got a sense of deja vu as these things unfolded, and I think it led them to believe, wait a minute, there's something important here that God wants us to get. Let's not miss it this time around. The dullness of the, of the disciples helps us to see that although they were around Jesus, there was still learning to do. And that's a lesson for all of us as well. There's still room for growth. Well, as we look at this text today, I think that there are some things that we have seen already about Jesus that come back up again. Therefore, let's not miss what Mark is trying to say. First of all, his compassion for the lost as the story of the feeding of the 4,000 this time unfolds, it shows us, once again, he is concerned for those who have needs. And what greater need is there than a person's spiritual destination, than a person's salvation in Christ? First of all, we see his compassion in his recognition of the problem. In verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days, and in that same time period, there was again a large crowd who had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples, and he said to them, I feel compassion on them. You know, this is the only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus himself states, I feel compassion on them. There are other places where the writer says, where Mark says, Jesus felt compassion. But this is the first time we see Jesus himself and the only time we see Jesus verbalize, I feel compassion on them. And his compassion leads him to act on their behalf. 
And it's important for us to understand also that no matter what it is that we are going through or what it is that we are facing, Jesus is aware of the situation. He knows when you are hurting. He knows when you have needs. He is aware. And not only is He aware, His compassion is a, is a sensitivity that leads Him to act on your behalf. We see that next in their reaction to the problem. You see, they were a little bit slow to grasp His willingness or perhaps even His ability to fix this situation. Because verse 4, it says, His disciples answered Him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And the first question we might ask is, Have they quickly forgotten what had already happened? When he fed 5,000 men, not including the women and children, have they forgotten that already? Well, I don't think that's something that someone necessarily forgets. When you experience something of that magnitude, you don't easily forget that. So I don't think the question is, you know, memory loss. I think they remembered that, but I think the question here is, on their hearts and on their minds is, is Jesus going to do that again in this situation? Perhaps they didn't want to be presumptuous and just say, well, Lord, you've done it before, do it again. Perhaps they were being a little bit uncertain about maybe not necessarily his ability, but maybe whether or not he was willing to do the same thing in this situation or not. And I think that we've all been in situations like that before where God has done something great before and we don't want to presume He's going to do the same thing again. And That's their reaction. And they talk about here in this desolate place, where will there be bread that will satisfy? And again, it can't help but remind us of, of the book of Exodus, the children of Israel leaving Egypt, headed toward the promised land in the desert. There was nothing for them to eat. God provides manna for His people. And the thought process is, Jesus did that once. Will Jesus provide the manna in the wilderness yet again? So their reaction was one of uncertainty, one of perhaps doubt, maybe even a lack of faith in the situation. But yet his compassion's undeterred. We see his resolution of the problem in verses 5 and following. We see his resolution to the problem rests in the fact that he has the divine power to create something from nothing. He has the divine power to satisfy when there is a hunger. You see in verse 5 he asked how many loaves you have and they said seven tells the people to sit down he takes the loaves and he gave thanks he blessed it in other words he showed them first of all to, to, to give God thanks for what he has provided including our meals but also it shows them the source of what is about to take place this is not normal stuff this isn't a human solution to the problem. This is a solution that comes from above. This is something only God can fix. And so he thanks 
God for the bread in advance of it being broken. And then he begins to break the pieces, symbolizing for us, again, the, the Lord's Supper, Jesus blessing the bread, breaking it, giving it to his disciples, which also reminds us of his work on the cross, that Jesus is the bread of life that was broken on the cross to satisfy the needs of our souls. He gave thanks, broke it. And then interestingly enough, it says he gave the bread to his disciples so that they could serve. This allows the disciples to experience firsthand the miracle that is taking place. And it allows them to have the privilege of being used of the Lord in this process of satisfying the need. Reminds us of the truth that Jesus has entrusted us as his followers to take his gospel message and take it to those who have the need. We are to play a vital role. We are to play a prominent role in Jesus meeting the needs of our community because their greatest need is the need for forgiveness of sin. Their greatest need is the need for salvation. And Jesus meets that need and he invites us, he calls us, he commands us to take part in that process of bringing the gospel to those in need. His resolution to the problem. Now I mentioned before that there are a lot of similarities in this text, in the one that we read at the end of chapter 6, so much so that some people have been led to believe there wasn't really two separate feedings. There was only one. And maybe the story kind of got mixed up or confused along the way. And lo and behold, now it looks like there was really two, but there was only one. Because there was a great group of people. They were hungry, nothing to eat, small amount of food. Jesus prays, he blesses it, he gives, and they're satisfied. Leftovers are collected People say, well, it's the same story. It just got twisted along the way and to the point where we see it looks like two stories. Now, there are a lot of differences in this passage, and the differences, I believe, are key to understanding and interpreting the fact that there was two separate feedings. And that was for a reason. First of all, we saw back in, in uh, verse 2 that this feeding happened after three days in the wilderness whereas the first one it says was only one day the next thing we see that is different is this time it's his initiative in the prior story the disciples come to him and they say Lord there's people here they're hungry what are you going to do about it this time around Jesus himself notices the need and he says to the disciples there's a need out there I've got compassion so it's his initiative this time around also, we see the differences in numbers. 5,000 the first time, 4,000 this time, 5 loaves the first time, 7 loaves the second time, 12 baskets the first time, 7 baskets the second time. There's differences in numbers. Maybe those numbers are communicating something to us and we can, we can kind of chase this numerology thing you know, to the extremes. But I believe there's enough differences here to, to lead us to a conclusion that this was something unique. And I think the most unique thing about this 
is the location of where this took place. The first feeding was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowd that day would have been predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish. Here we read Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's in the, the area of Decapolis. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd would have been, if not predominantly Gentile, there would have been a good mix of Jew and Gentile in this crowd. And maybe, just maybe, that was the question driving the disciples in their doubt of whether Jesus would do the same thing here in the Gentile setting that he had done for the Jews. And I think Jesus looking out and saying, I've got compassion on this multitude. I'm going to do the same thing for them in their need that I did for the Jews in their need. That communicates to us that Christ is concerned and compassionate towards all of the lost, not just some. Doesn't remind, doesn't matter the ethnicity, doesn't matter the, the, the background, the gender, the age, it doesn't matter. If you are lost, Jesus has compassion on you, and Jesus wants to move to rectify that situation. I have compassion on the lost. He meets the needs. There's abundant leftovers, twelve baskets full in the Jewish setting. We can't help but think. Jews, 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus satisfies that need. The Gentile setting, there's seven baskets collected in a, in a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles together. The number seven communicates perfection, wholeness, completion. His church is not complete until he brings in the fullness of all of those he has died to save, both Jew and Gentile. This is a separate feeding miracle meant to communicate something special for the Gentiles. That's us. Praise God for that. His compassion for the lost is followed by his confrontation with the leaders. This is something that has happened already several times in Mark's Gospel. Prior conflicts with the religious establishment over the issue of tradition, specifically over the issue of authority. Whose authority do we follow? Who's in charge? Is it the tradition of the elders that they have established? Or is it the Word of God? and God alone. We see, first of all, they give a selfish demand for a sign. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came out began to argue with him, began to continually harass him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. And we can't help but say, have they not noticed all that's been transpiring around them? that the lame have been healed, the demon-possessed have been exercised, the deaf have been made to hear again, multitudes have been fed through small amounts of food. Have they not a clue what's going on? They say, in essence, we believe you're doing these things, but we want to know whether or not these things are of God or not. Whether you're some strange miracle worker, even worse, 
Maybe your power is the source, has its source in the devil. So they say, give us a sign from heaven. Somehow communicate to us that God is involved in what you are doing. In other words, he must prove himself. He's got to do it on their terms. We're guilty of that sometimes. God, if you're really involved, or if you're really doing something, then I want you to do this for me. If you do this for me, that's my sign to believe in you. What he was doing was not enough for them. They wanted to put him in a box and say, if you're really God, then do this. Give us a sign from heaven. Not only was it a selfish demand, it was a sinful desire for a sign. As verse 11 says, they did this in order to test him. They were putting him to the test. Whether or not he would operate according to their terms. Interestingly enough, this word test is the same word for tempt that was used of Satan back in chapter 1 after Jesus was baptized. It was in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan came to him and he, and he tempted him. One of the temptations that we read about in Matthew and Luke is that the temptation to turn the stone into bread. To prove you are really the Son. If you are the Son of God, then you do this. You perform this sign. And so it's ironic enough that here is the religious leaders accusing Jesus back in chapter 3 of being demon-possessed, the religious leaders are now the ones doing the same thing that Satan had done to Jesus back in chapter 1. Tempting him. A sinful desire for a sign. In verses 12 and 13, we see a strong denial of a sign. Jesus says, not going to happen. Sighing deeply in his spirit. Last week we saw him sighing, but one that was merciful and compassionate. This time, just fed up with the whole situation. Sighing deeply. He says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Everything that you have needed to see, I've already done. Jesus is saying, my work and my words are sufficient. Either believe it or not. Here we see him winning another victory. Satan tempted him, if you are really the Son of God, do this. And Jesus said, no. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The importance of taking God at His word. And here we see Him winning another victory because it's not by bread alone. It's not by human desire alone. It's not by sign. It's by the word of God. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, you know, if God will just do blank, then I will believe in Him. If there really is a God, if He would just cause this to happen, or if He would really just 
pop in and show himself, if God would just do blank and insert whatever in that blank, then I would believe in him. You know, that is no different than what the Pharisees were doing in this situation, which was putting God to the test, which is no different than what Satan was doing. And by denying them this sign, what Jesus is saying is, my word is enough. My word is sufficient. My works are enough. Either you believe it or not. I'm not going to change what I do just to please your demands. You come to me on my terms or you don't come at all. We might say, wow, that's kind of harsh, but who's the authority in the situation? That's what this whole dispute was about. Who's in the authoritative position to demand anything? Not the Pharisees. Not you, not me, the Lord. He is the authority. He is trustworthy. His word is enough. And if you don't believe His word is enough, if you're not of the willingness to humble yourself and believe this Scripture, if you're not willing to surrender yourself to Christ on His terms, what's the result? Verse 13, it says, Leaving them, He again embarked and went away to the other side. He left them behind. That's what He's going to do to you. If you don't come to Him on His terms, humble yourself, Take him at his word and trust him. His confrontation with the leaders, followed by, once again, their confusion over the loaves. Here, Jesus, as a master teacher, he uses bread as an object lesson to teach a vital truth to his disciples. Interestingly enough, verse 14 starts out this way. They had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Are you kidding me? He just fed 4,000 people. They had seven, literally seven large baskets, baskets big enough to, to fit a human being inside of them. They had seven of those baskets collected and nobody thought to bring any bread on the boat. Now, I can imagine having, you know, 12 dudes together, how the conversation probably went down. Wasn't my fault. No. I told Peter to do it. Peter says, no, I, I asked James to do it. James said, hey, I told my little brother John. I'm older than him. It's his responsibility. You know what bottom line might have been? Judas might have saw a little prophet in that and said, you know what? These people are getting ready to go home. We've got seven baskets full. I'll sell them a little bit. I'll sell them a, a to-go box of bread to take with. I don't know what the, what the situation was, but somebody dropped the ball. There was a lack of physical foresight on their behalf. And because of their foresight, they were going to stay hungry. Jesus seizes that opportunity and says... Verse 15, watch out, beware. These are commands. Watch out, 
Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Probably what they thought was, well, we're hungry, we ain't got no bread. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, okay, we, we won't eat any of the Pharisees' bread. But that still doesn't change the fact we don't have any bread. Arguing amongst themselves. And here is a situation where Jesus is teaching, don't trust in religion like the Pharisees do. Don't trust in worldliness like Herod and the the politicians do because it's not enough. You're hungry. Religion and worldliness are not going to satisfy that need. Beware. The the yeast, just the little bit of yeast, a pinch, will, will, will infiltrate the entire lump of dough. Religion and legalism will do that. Just a little bit of it will contaminate you. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a one-on-one relationship. A love relationship. It's not about rules and traditions and rituals. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a lack of physical foresight on their behalf. It's also a lack of spiritual insight also. Jesus said to them, and here's a series of nine questions. There's another uh, bit of evidence that Jesus was a master teacher. He, he takes an object lesson, bread and hunger. He teaches a great truth with that. And he asks nine questions, one right after the other, after the other. First of all, he says, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? So three questions in a row. Quit focusing on the physical stuff and start thinking about the spiritual level. Start thinking about who it really is that is doing these things. Then he quotes Scripture. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? So it says, quit looking at the situation. Quit thinking about the problem. And focus on Christ. Now here they are. These are are men that are spending a lot of time with Jesus. But they don't quite get it yet. So what that tells me, just being around Jesus, just being around Christian stuff, is no substitute for actually getting Jesus. For actually understanding Jesus. Just having a a working knowledge about Christ is not the same as loving Christ and knowing Christ. Disciples were at a situation here where they should have gotten it. But they just didn't. Jesus calls them on this and their lack of spiritual insight. Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Since they only had one loaf of bread with them on the boat. But you know what? They really did have 
the one true loaf of bread on the boat with them. That was all they needed. They thought, man, if we could just have some of them baskets full on here, then, then we'd be all right. And Jesus has said, you've got the bread of life. What I did for those multitudes is a symbol for what I will do for anyone spiritually. That hungry belly is nothing compared to that hungry heart, that hungry soul that you have. And just as I gave more than enough to fill that need physically, I will do that for you spiritually. The one true loaf of bread was on the boat with them. And they were arguing about physical loaves. It's a lack of spiritual insight on their behalf. There's also a lack of historical hindsight. He says, Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full you picked up? They said, Twelve. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, "Um, Seven. Which, by the way, this is evidence that there was two separate feedings. Because Jesus said there were two separate feedings. That's enough for me. That'll be enough for any of us. And then he says, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many did you pick up? They said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? There is a need. No one can satisfy but me. And I will do that because I have compassion. Not because I have to, not because I'm compelled to, not because I'm bought. I will act out of love and generosity and I will meet that need. I will more than satisfy that need. But you've got to come to me on my terms. You can't lay the limits down and say, well, if you will do this, if you will just give me this sign, then I, then I just might follow you. He says, no, you come to me as Lord because I say so. And you trust me and you take the bread that I offer you, you will never hunger again. Lack of historical hindsight. They completely missed the identity of Jesus by not thinking through what he's already done. You ever done that? You guilty of that? You find yourself in a situation and, and you start to squirm and you start to doubt whether or not God's going to bring you through it? You think, He's done it for me all those times in the past. I guess He's done. I guess He's, I guess he's through with me. He's just going to leave me here in this situation. I'm just going to waller in it. Woe is me. Begin to beat ourselves up. That's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. It's a lack of, histor- of historical hindsight to stop and think and dwell that time I was in need, didn't he satisfy that need? There was 5,000, 12 baskets left. There was 4,000, 7 baskets left. He's done it time and time again. He's proven his faithfulness to me. Why would I not believe he would do it for me now? He was teaching a lesson to his disciples about his identity and his sufficiency. He had multiplied loaves upon loaves and fish upon fish for 5,000 for 4,000. Here they are with him on the boat and they're 
complaining they only got one loaf. <laughs> says, gentlemen, don't you get it? I am the bread of life. Trust me. Stick with me. You'll be all right. All will be well. You know, life presents us with a series of learning events where others try to teach us things and gratefully others have patience with us because there are difficulties along the way. For example, in our household, you know, we got a two-year-old. Jaden, we're, we're trying to potty train him. You know, and it, it takes persistence. You've got to stay at it. Because <laughs> it don't quite stick the first time. No pun intended. <laughs> and you've got to keep at it, and you've got to stay patient. And some, sometimes they get it, and then all of a sudden there's backsliding. And it's like, ah, you know. You've got to work with it. You know, then we've got a six-year-old. We've got Kylie in the house. And she's, she's learned to read in kindergarten. And at the start, you know, sometimes she would get frustrated and you just have to teach, you know, you got to stay at it, honey. You got to stay you got to stay persistent and and we would coach and we would encourage and she would go to school and she would learn and come home and and it just takes effort and it takes time to get it. We got an 8-year-old, Logan, almost 9 and and we've been trying to teach him how to ride a bike and we're thinking, okay, this is the summer it's going to happen, you know, it's going to stick and you know, there's bumps and there's bruises and there's and there's and there's falls and there's just fears and, and it just takes time to overcome those things. You gotta stay patient, you gotta stay persistent so they'll get it. Some of y'all may have sixteen year olds in your house. We're not quite there yet, but I know we're getting there one day. You know, Laura was talking about it last week with Reagan, you know, with her permit and, and learning to drive and and uh you know, sometimes you can lose your patience with somebody when you're trying to teach them to drive. I remember whenever uh, Nancy's sister was living with us, I was teaching her how to drive before she took her driver's test. Nancy wouldn't teach her. She said, I, I just can't do it. I ain't got the patience. I'm scared to death. And so I would just sit in there, and I would ride with her, and I'd just keep my mouth shut, you know. And you know, occasionally I'd give her a few pointers and just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride, you know. And that's sometimes what we've got to stay with it. And just uh, we got to be grateful that somebody is patient with us when we mess up and when we go backwards. And somebody's persistent and they don't give up on us. It's what the Lord did for the disciples. Fed the multitudes. He, he fought off the Pharisees. He, he talked about uh, the, the loaves and the bread and the crumbs with the Syrophoenician woman. And here he's back at it again, feeding multitudes, fighting Pharisees, talking about loaves. And the reason he's done this is because he wants his disciples, he really wants them to understand. You know, he's not impatient. He's teaching. Praise the Lord. He's done that with me. Praise the Lord he's doing that with, with you. And praise God for his patience and his persistence. So the bottom line is, you need to pray to God that he will help you to get it. To get it. There are times we just don't get it. There's times it happens once and it just don't stick. So pray to God that he will help you to get it. What are you to get? 
that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that God is a God of holiness, a God of justice, a God of wrath. Sin must be atoned for, but He is a God of compassion. He is a God who loves you. He is a God who doesn't want to leave you hungry. He is a God who wants to meet that need. And He is a God who has moved heaven and earth to send His only begotten Son to live for you, to die for you, to rise for you, to teach you, to patiently and persistently deal with you so that you will get it. Jesus is Lord. I can trust Him. Jesus is Lord. I must obey Him. Jesus is Lord. I must tell others. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we confess, just like the disciples did 2,000 years ago, there's often times we're just dull. We're just hard-headed, hard-hearted, We run dangerously close to that line of unbelief that the Pharisees and the Herodians had crossed. They had rejected Jesus as Messiah because He didn't do things the way they wanted Him to do. The disciples didn't quite get it but they were trying and he was patient Father that's us we are called to be disciples followers students of Jesus and sometimes we get it and great things happen sometimes we drop the ball and we need your patience God we are so grateful this morning you are a God of patience a God of long suffering If you weren't, you would have given up on us a long time ago. But here you are today, and you are pleading with everyone in this room, with everyone within the sound of my voice, God, you are pleading today. You are pleading that we would come to Christ, that we would feed on Christ, that we would be satisfied with Christ. Maybe someone here today, God, has never trusted Jesus, that has never surrendered to Christ. I pray, Lord, as you are speaking today and as you have presented yourself through your word, that they would trust and obey. Father, whatever decisions need to be made today, church membership, baptism, call to the ministry, rededication of a life to walk faithfully, Lord, we just want to humble ourselves and pray your will be done. Your will be done in this church. Your will be done in my life. If you are calling me, God, to walk this aisle, to kneel at this altar, to speak to someone, I pray, God, whatever he is calling us to do, we would respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing our invitation hymn. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. He is speaking today. Would you respond? He's trustworthy. You can believe Him. He's authoritative. You must surrender to Him. Would you come? The altar is open. You want to come and kneel and pray? I will pray with you or for you. Bottom line is, if God wants you to walk this aisle today, that's what you need to do.
Don't hold back. As he's calling for you, would you come?